you're in appointment hell. Started crying. I said, I'm going to have to go through this whole process again. Vaccine appointments canceled. Doses in short supply. Not this week, and I don't think next week either. There's just not as much supply out there. A million in our state have the shot. Millions more to go. Florida's lieutenant governor addresses the changing logistics live. So we've got to move with everything we've got. We've got to do it together. New president, new call for unity. At the same time, another impeachment moves forward. The articles will be delivered to the Senate on Monday. South Florida Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart weighs in. What we're talking about here is protecting the Constitution and the rule of law. A big week in news, and we have it covered this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin with the scramble for supply and changes coming in the way Floridians will be getting the COVID vaccine. More than a million Floridians have had their first shots. A lot of them are seniors, but more than 4 million seniors in the state are still waiting for theirs, along with all the younger residents. This week, hospitals had to cancel appointments after learning from the state the vaccine supply just wasn't there. States have have been receiving vaccine distributions from the national supply, though with the new Biden administration, those logistics may be changing again. And that is where we start with Florida's Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez, who is with us today from Isla Mirada. Good morning, LT. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, Michael. Lieutenant Governor, great to see you. Thanks for being with us. The supply of the vaccine, we got 266,000 doses last week. Are we out of vaccine? What's going to happen this week? So as you aptly pointed out, this is a supply issue. And so we are at the behest of the federal government. So each week we get informed what our allocation will be. Uh, as you mentioned last week, 266,000. That is the expectation for next week. We were hoping for an increase so that we can continue to bolster uh, our multidimensional strategy in getting shots in arms. Our vaccine has been really focused, as you well know. Seniors first has been our policy. And we're proud that we have vaccinated close to a million seniors, more than any other state in the country. Uh, but we are, again, we're, we're really struggling with uh, being able to get increase from the federal government. So our hope is that we will see that allotment increase week over week. That way we can continue to work with our partners throughout the state in each and every county to get as much uh, vaccine out into the communities so that our seniors, which are priority, can get that vaccine and then move on to other groups. So right now, Lieutenant Governor, the state gets the supply from the federal supply and then the state is in charge of the distribution. And we've seen the state try to open more distribution points, now grocery stores and houses of worship also uh, supplementing the hospitals and the counties. But with the new change of administration this week, uh, President Biden seems to indicate that he wants more of a centralized federal process. Do you have any indication that this whole distribution network is going to change in the next week, two weeks, month? Well, we hope not, because we really think that Florida has gotten it right, and Governor DeSantis has, has commented on this, and he's indicated that while the federal government under uh, the new president has indicated they're looking at doing sort of a FEMA-supported site, um, we feel that our method is working. We feel it's getting out to the community. We don't need additional sites. We're working uh, with all of our partners. And you mentioned, obviously, Publix. We have over 240 locations in 18 different counties. We have uh, partnerships with hospitals 
schools, as you well know, here at Jackson. They have three sites set up, working with the county mayors. And we've also rolled out to houses of worship, working with particular communities that may have underserved populations, people with access challenges. Um, we've seen uh, synagogues and other churches where none of their congregants have been able to receive vaccine. That's working really well, identifying pockets of communities. And so we don't really need the federal government to come in and set up sites. We have plenty of those hard rock, Marlins Park, um, you name it, throughout the state. What we need is more supply, more vaccine. Florida will take care of delivering it to the right locations, making sure our partners are working efficiently, diligently, and getting as much vaccine yeah. administered, again, to our priority group, which is seniors first, and then being able to move on to other groups. Yeah. Lieutenant Governor, as you well know, 1.3 million Floridians have received their shots, I'm happy to say. I'm one of them, grateful for Jackson for uh, doing that, got number one. Uh, however, uh, the Democrats say there still are about a million doses sitting in refrigerators, freezers that have not been administered. Is that a correct number? That's just simply not true. We are working, as I said, as efficiently and diligently. The, government, the governor has been adamant at making sure that there is no delays. He wants to make sure that those vaccines are being administered as quickly as possible. I mean, I have visited several sites. Uh, I've been to Jackson, I've been to Memorial Healthcare, I've been to several, you know, several publics. And I think that we are doing a great job of getting them out into the community as quickly as possible. There is no massive warehouses. The governor made that very clear. We don't hoard vaccine. We uh, are doing the best we can with this limited supply. It is really, truly a supply issue. Um, anyone you talk to, any state really is having the same challenges. And Florida is far outpacing um, our fellow states in terms of administering vaccine to elderly. And we are number three um, behind California and Texas, obviously, in terms of overall vaccine administered. But again, our request, our cry for help is that the federal government will increase our supply. Uh, we will be able to get that out into the community put shots in arms as quickly as possible. And we're also focused, as you well know, Michael and Glenna, on the nursing home population, the ALS. Yeah. About 96% of our nursing homes have reported that they have had residents and staff that have been vaccinated, and we're approaching 50% of our assisted living facilities. So again, multi-pronged strategy, focused on our senior population, which we know is the most at risk. Can I ask you uh, something about the long-term care facilities? Um, the state, uh, a month ago or so, stepped in first, when it first got supply, went into a couple of nursing homes, but nursing homes and long-term care are supposed to be under the purview of a federal contract under companies, uh, CVS and Walgreens run companies. Um, they were not there. That was nowhere. And Lieutenant Governor, I know the state stepped in again and went into some of the nursing homes where the federal contracted process was supposed to work. What happened there? Where are those CVS and Walgreens? They're, they're in some places, but certainly not mm -hmm. fast and effective. And the state had to once again step in to sort of commandeer that. What happened with that? Well, I think that really highlights the point that the state is best equipped in partnering with local providers to administer that vaccine as quickly as possible. The governor simply wasn't happy with the pace of Walgreens and CVS reaching out into the nursing homes. We understood the urgency. There truly is a urgency around that population, and they, they are most at risk. Our seniors obviously are vulnerable, but even much more so those that are in that type of setting. So the governor obviously stepped in. We have um, obviously 
obviously worked with other providers to help with the assisted living facilities. And again, we wanted to make sure that these shots were being administered as quickly as possible. But I think that really highlights the importance of the previous question about having the federal government come in and, and set up sites. Uh, we, we certainly wanted to make sure that we were in control of that. And, and Governor DeSantis has done just an extraordinary job of insisting on efficiency and insisting on making sure that those shots are getting administered as quickly as possible. Yeah. Lieutenant Governor, let me kind of ask you to dig down into the rollout of the vaccines. It began, I believe, December 17th was about when the first vaccines arrived and were rolled out. The governor and your strategy was to give it to the big hospitals, five big hospitals in the state, and then smaller hospitals, and say, you guys figure out how to do it. But the hospitals overbooked. They gave some shots to big board members and donors and apparently angered the governor, maybe angered you. And now the, 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 the emphasis seems to have shifted to the State Department of Health. Is that the agency now that is really running this? So the State Department of Health is coordinating very closely with our Division of Emergency Management. So together from a logistics standpoint and then from a public health standpoint, they really, those two agencies are spearheading this endeavor. Um, as you mentioned, obviously the Pfizer five, those first five hospitals that received the Pfizer vaccine, uh, Jackson Memorial, Tampa General, Advent in Orlando and Shands in Jacksonville. Um, those were the first hospitals to receive the Pfizer vaccine because as we know, the Pfizer vaccine requires some um, some storage, uh, ultra-cold storage that um, other hospitals perhaps didn't, uh, didn't want to get into. So then they received, those other hospitals, the remaining hospitals, received the Moderna vaccine. And so every hospital at this point has had access to vaccine. Um, what we have seen, as uh, I think you mentioned earlier, was some hospitals have had to cancel. Uh, unfortunately, some hospitals booked way out into the future. And again, without being able to predict week over week what type of allocation we're going to get, it's hard to book an appointment in mid-February and assume that we'll have vaccine. Um, that's our hope. We continue to press to ask for more vaccine. But I think some hospitals, for example, Jackson has done a good job of sort of limiting the, the appointments to the actual vaccine on hand so as to not create frustration down the road. Of course, it creates frustration from seniors that aren't able to get an appointment when they open up their system. But we are working as diligently as possible. We've had to tweak. Um, as you can imagine, this is the largest uh, response effort ever in the history of our state. Uh, we are accustomed to dealing with hurricanes. We do a good job in dealing with those types of emergencies. This is something that we've never dealt with in our history. So we uh, wanted to make sure that we're tweaking. And that's why you've seen the governor expand his strategy, focus on uh, being able to deliver vaccine to publics. For example, they have access, easy access within 1.5 miles of uh, you know a, a particular county. Any resident has easy access to publics. Working with those churches, houses of worship, really important strategy. And so we're going to continue to push. But but yes, there's been ha we've had to tweak and we've had to address issues. The the vaccine tourism, I'm sure, is one that you'll want to talk about. And that's we, we that do, but we got to we got to take a, a quick break. Um, we'll talk about vaccine tourism and also some of the concerns we're hearing in the newsroom from people trying to get those appointments. But sit tight. We'll be back in two minutes. We're back with Florida's Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez on all things COVID and the logistics of the vaccine. Lieutenant Governor, 
We hear every day in this newsroom from people who just can't get the appointment to get the vaccine. Uh, the way it stands now, there's a patchwork of distribution sites, uh, for better or worse, as we were talking about. And it's a, a lot of the appointment scheduling is online. The very seniors who are eligible are probably the demographic that are least computer literate. And it's almost like a first come, first serve. Um, and a lot of people who can't be first are not getting that. Is there, what is the state doing to address sort of these inequities and even trying to get an appointment to get the vaccine? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, that's a source of frustration for the governor. And, you know, we're not going to continue to harp on the supply issue. I think that's been well documented. I think Floridians and Americans throughout the country understand it is a supply issue. But nonetheless, we have a responsibility to address some of those unique circumstances. And that is one, as you pointed out, individuals, especially uh, those that are elderly, are usually the less uh, tech savvy or have very little access, if any, to technology to be able to go online the minute a system opens and book an appointment. Um, so again, we have been really looking at what are the best ways to handle that. And I think clearly the the, the strategy that the governor has implemented with working with synagogues and, and home, uh, houses of worship, I think that's something that we're really proud of because we've seen in many circumstances, those are the individuals that truly don't have access to technology. And so those churches, they have been very helpful in identifying seniors that don't have access, that don't have technology, that can't go online, and being able to prioritize and, and identify those that within their congregations, within their mosques, within, within their synagogues, have been um, identified as individuals that need the vaccine, that meet the criteria. So that's one of the strategies. Uh, we're going to continue to work with our counties, uh, again, government closest to the people. They understand um, the challenges of individuals in, in that age group not being able to access technology. So we're going to continue to push forward. We're going to continue to work uh, in identifying ways to make it easier for those seniors. But yeah. again, and, we have and, and, and if I'm excuse me, if I may, there's another area where I, I know it's a big problem for cities, counties and the state. And that is this growing disparity between people who are white and wealthy who are being vaccinated at a high rate, like the Miami Herald reports this morning, 40% of the residents on Fisher Island, one of the wealthiest places in the country, 40% are vaccinated there versus 1.4% of the people in Opalaka, poor, predominantly black. How are you, how is the state trying to, to change that disparity? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that we look at. We uh, pour through the data and make sure that we're identifying those pockets of community. So working with our county mayor, working with those elected in that area, we are asking them, please help us identify an area where we can go into uh, a church in the middle of your city, in the middle of your community, so that we can provide ease of access, that we can provide vaccine to those individuals that don't have the type of access as, as the figures that you're pointing out, Michael. So really, the, that strategy has been working. We're going to continue to employ that strategy and see how we can further delve into that potential disparity. And we want to make sure in certain communities, there's always vaccine hesitancy in certain 
different communities. And so we want to make sure the more they see individuals getting vaccinated, the more people feel comfortable. And that's true even within our healthcare worker community. You know, I asked a hospital recently, what was, you know, when you pre-surveyed before you received the vaccine, even within the healthcare workers, they had said they had about a 50% uh, response rate of individuals that work there that would have liked to have received the vaccine. Well, that is growing because of the confidence people are having, seeing their peers getting vaccinated, seeing that there has been little to no effects. And so that we hope is going to continue to grow. We hope pockets of communities that maybe initially were a little hesitant to receive the vaccine are going to see their peers being vaccinated. And so that will continue to grow. Again, supply is going to We've actually, we've seen and heard and documented the very same thing. And while we're looking at the supply as the major issue you brought up, something like vaccine tourism, which kind of fits into mm -hmm. the overarching concerns that people have of fairness. That, that is what we hear the most here in the newsroom. Mm -hmm. um, we've documented cases of what you call vaccine tourism, people coming from outside the country, specifically just to land in Florida, get the vaccines, go home. Is that a one-off? Is that a huge problem? Characterize, put that in context for us. Sure. Well, imagine if you receive calls every day, I promise you I receive the same calls. And so that's Again, we're always trying to address issues that pop up, uh, things that perhaps we did not anticipate. Florida is in a unique position. We know we have a inordinate amount of snowbirds, probably more than any other state in the country. And so that obviously is going to be a little bit of a challenge. But what we've done um, just last week, the, the state surgeon general issued a public health advisory indicating that those that are administering the vaccine, they need to ensure that it is a Florida resident. So no individuals coming into our state from another country or another state saying they're here for whatever reason and then going and taking a spot that should be held for a Florida resident. And so that's something that I think really addresses part of the issue. And so the providers that are um, in the game, right, giving vaccine, they're going to require Florida driver's license. They're going to require some sort of documentation, whether it is a lease or a, uh, a utility bill, something that will prove that you reside here in Florida. Can I just uh, ask a, a quick follow-up in the short time we have? Is that going to be problematic for countless people in South Florida who are undocumented yet live here? Um, mm -hmm. Will they be able to get that kind of vaccine? Well, obviously, we're, we're going to have to continue to address challenges as they arise. But we want to make sure that Florida residents, especially our senior population, um, you know, we hear like you every day, countless seniors can't get an appointment. And then they see other individuals that are from another state, another country, perhaps here illegally getting vaccine. And I don't think that's fair. And so we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to avoid vaccine tourism. When we look at the data, it shows that 97 percent of vaccine is going to Florida residents. Um, that remaining 3% is, like you asked, is it a one-off? Is it a big problem? I, I would say that any individual getting a vaccine that's not a Florida resident is a problem. Uh, but within that 3%, we also have to keep in mind that you have healthcare workers that are coming from other states here in Florida to assist with um, with vaccine, with COVID. And so we want to make sure those individuals are vaccinated too. So those healthcare workers will fall within that 3%. So it's hard to say exactly how many instances of people that fly into yeah. our state just for the purpose well, of that. We're glad, Lieutenant Governor, we're glad to know you and the state are on that case because as Glenda says, we hear those complaints daily in our newsroom. Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much. Thank you both. All right, up next from inauguration to impeachment, we have a lot to discuss with South Florida Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart. He will join us live next.
Tomorrow, the House of Representatives will deliver, deliver a single article of impeachment to the Senate. It accuses former President Trump of inciting insurrection. Congress faces that upcoming trial as it works with a new president, new goals, and new plans to overcome the fallout of the COVID pandemic. One of the former President Trump's staunchest supporters in Congress is with us this morning, Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart, Republican representing the 25th Congressional District, Southwest Dade to Southwest Florida. Good morning, Congressman. Great to see you. Congressman, welcome. Great to have you back. Uh, Congressman, we will get to impeachment in just a minute. First, I want to ask you to explain why you supported the petition for a commutation, a pardon of Dr. Solomon Mulgan, the uh, ophthalmologist from West Palm Beach, who was convicted of defrauding the government of $73 million in Medicare money and private insurance money, uh, was sentenced to 17 years in prison, but you went to bat for him and your voice was important in the fact that he was pardoned. Why, why did you do that? In the spirit of the criminal justice reform bill, um, you know, the question, and it was for humanitarian reasons. So is he a threat to society? No. Is he a danger to anybody? No. Um, uh, he's got, uh, you know, his health is failing. His wife's health uh, is failing. And for humanitarian reasons, and in the spirit of the criminal just justice reform bill, which I know, Michael, uh, you've spoken quite a bit about and I yes. think supported uh, the, the whole concept yes. of people who are not dangerous to society should probably not be in prison where the taxpayer has to pay for their imprisonment when in fact in many cases and in some cases and this is one of those for for humanitarian reasons it's better for him to be home again because he's not he's not a threat to anybody and contrary now he can help uh, his wife, he can help his uh, his uh, health care, yeah. and we spend less money. So it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. Well, we, we understand the humanitarian impulse, and I believe, in, in fact, in the bill that you're mentioning and in forgiveness, right. redemption, and so on. But this guy stole a huge amount of money, one of the largest Medicaid frauds in the history of the United States. And he got a 17-year sentence, had served basically two and a half years, but you think it's time to let him out. Again, I think here's a question. Uh, and, you know, your statement, which is a valid statement, could be said for every single person that has been released uh, based on the uh, criminal justice reform bill. There are folks there who are who have been selling drugs to minors uh, who are in federal prison. Uh, you're not in federal prison for minor uh, things. And yet uh, they've been released because, again, there were either um, um, no, you know, there were no danger uh, to society anymore. In this case, again, Michael, if you can tell me that this individual is going to be a threat to society, is a danger to society, uh, and uh, and then I will reverse my position, but I know you can't do that because just that's, that's not the case. It's in the spirit of the criminal justice reform bill. It is clearly, I think, a positive humanitarian action, and I uh, thank the president for doing it. So let's stay with the crime and punishment theme and talk about impeachment. Uh, the uh, vote for impeachment for former President Donald Trump was a bipartisan vote in uh, nationwide, a bipartisan vote. But Congressman in South Florida, it was not bipartisan at all. Uh, the vote for South Florida's members of Congress was strictly along party lines. Talk, if you will, a little bit about your perspective, why you voted against impeaching the former president a second time. You know, it's interesting that the uh, facts that keep, com keep coming out as have been reported by every news organization uh, are actually proving that, proving that I was correct. The entire impeachment is a very sad lie and farce. Uh, it, was, it was based on one phrase, in essence, that he said, you know, we need to fight like hell. 
Um, and they basically claimed that because of that, he was the reason, that statement was the reason why these thugs went and uh, raided Congress. What we now know to be true, which by the way, I think most of us suspected at the time, was that these, are, these were premeditated acts of violence by very dangerous criminal groups and criminal thugs. Uh, they had thought about this, planned it before any speech by the president or anybody else. And again, I think you would agree if you've read any of the reports that that is the case. So again, it is a farce. And not only is it a farce and a lie, it's a very divisive lie and farce. I believe we should try to kind of unite this country, unify this country. Uh, was that something, is that something that's going to help unify or is that going to divide the country? So, so again, that, based on a farce, that, I, based on a lie, now a proven, because I think both of you would have to agree what I just said, that all the reports, every single report from the FBI, from every agency, uh, law enforcement agency is proving that these were premeditated acts by groups of criminals and thugs who have to suffer the consequences of the law. That's what we should be focused on. Not a very, uh, again, a very sad, divisive lie for political reasons, I guess, from Nancy Pelosi. She also said, by the way, if you remember that debate, that it had to be done right away because the president could not be there one day. The president was there to the 20th, which just proves to you that it was a lie, it was a farce, it's divisive. And again, so I'm every day I feel better about that vote. Okay, two things. And I just, for, for the record, I don't mean to interrupt. It's really difficult on Skype to have an interactive conversation. Um, but a couple of things that you brought up, unity and responsibility. Th there are pretty powerful Republicans who, um, uh, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, who have publicly said they believe that former President Trump does have responsibility for the interaction in some part. But to your, to your point, does it rise to a criminal impeachment? And what does that do to unity? So here's the question. If, if someone, and to Michael's question before about the pardons and commutations, what message does it send, aside from the unity issue, what message does it send if there is a crime or wrongdoing that goes unpunished. What what message does mm -hmm. that send to the country? Oh no, that would be that, that would be totally unacceptable. So I'm hoping, and uh, and I think it's going to happen, that these individuals responsible for this for this heinous act of violence against democracy, against more than just a building. That that Capitol building is is the symbol of democracy. That they suffer the consequences of their actions. But again, if you read the actual impeachment, uh, the article of impeachment, it talks about this one phrase. And that's the reason it says, in essence, uh, says that that's the reason why these thugs did what they did. And that has proven, Glenna, proven to be false, number one. Number two is, if, if now, now, do I think the president's speech was a perfect speech? Absolutely not. But should we, for example, ask uh, and demand that Senator Bernie Sanders, um, you know, get thrown out of the Senate because a crazy individual uh, believing that he had heard Bernie Sanders, you know, tell him that he should go kill Republicans at a baseball field, went ahead and did that. No, it's that crazy individual, not Bernie Sanders, who's responsible. I would argue that Bernie Sanders or the president of all or all of us should probably moderate how we speak. But there are only the ones responsible for this have to be held accountable. And again, I go back to it. Have you not seen the reports that prove? that all of this was yeah. premeditated by uh, by groups out there that were going to do this regardless of anything. It had nothing to do with the speech. And if you read the article of impeachment, that's what it talks about. So again, I base myself on the facts, Glenna. You know, that's what I try to do. I know you do, you do as well. So I think you would agree that these were premeditated acts by yeah. criminals 
and it has nothing to do with what any individual said. Well, uh, you know, uh, Congressman, I would certainly agree from the reporting I have done, things that I have read, uh, groups like the Oath Takers and the Proud Boys right. and maybe others had planned, premeditated, you know, an attack and they used the speech on the ellipse as sort of the, the, the excuse to go ahead and do what they did. I, I think that there's going yeah. to be conspiracy th uh, charges that will come out of that. So your point, your point is well taken. But let's go back to the speech. The president said more than be strong, give them hell, go up there and, you know, get um, uh, uh, members of Congress. I mean, he mentioned uh, Lynn uh, Cheney, Congressman Woman Cheney by name. I mean, wasn't that just sort of over the top? Do you find his speech really acceptable? No, I don't think it was a great speech by any stretch of the imagination. But again, what we're talking about here is, because I do believe uh, in the freedom of speech, you know, I've fought, I, I guess using the word fought now is probably not okay, because I'll probably be accused now of saying that I'm inciting violence. I have fought for uh, the freedom of speech my entire public, uh, and, you, and you know that, Michael. So was that a good speech? No. Were there speeches that I've heard either in that moment or in other moments that were as bad or worse? Absolutely. Yeah. Were they a reason uh, to go after individuals? No. I think you fight yeah, bad but, speech but, but with Congressman. I mean, look, I don't want to sort of get in a back and forth here. I would simply say what other whatever other instances you're talking about, about bad speeches that resulted in things. The fact of the matter is, at noon on January 6th, the President of the United States stood on the ellipse, talked to many thousands of people, and by 2 o'clock, they were invading the Capitol. That's cause and effect. Michael, again, you're not, uh, you know, it's, 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 that's basically like saying that cheese is round, the moon is round, so therefore, the moon is made out of cheese, that logic. Uh, again, you may have missed all of the reporting that showed that these were criminal groups that were going to do this if the president yeah. was not even there. Well, I just think, I just they were admitted going to do that. that so again, were. those are the facts. Now you can try to you know, spin it how you want, but the facts speak for themselves. And I would uh, urge you to look at the reports even from your own network that have stated that very plainly. Congressman, can we, before we let you go, um, immigration is such a huge issue here. And one of the first things that the new president did in a series of executive orders is uh, halt deportations for 100 days, um, made a plan for amnesty for undocumented uh, over the next couple of years. This is something you have been such a strong voice in Congress on this issue, really looking to bridge the partisan divide. I, I want you and I want your constituents to be able to hear uh, what you think of this series of executive orders about fears from a lot of people who have in the past called this kind of thing amnesty. Where, where do you see this beginning and going and ending? I'm hoping we can work in a bipartisan way to finally fix the broken immigration system. I'm more than anxious to work with the administration in getting that done. Uh, some of the executive orders, by the way, have been, I think, rather uh, uh, damaging um, uh, to please the elites while hurting uh, working class Americans. But as far as immigration is concerned, I look forward to working with this administration. I'm hoping uh, that he's willing to negotiate, because if he's willing to negotiate, he will find in me somebody who's willing to roll up his sleeves to get the job done. And that's what we need to do. We need to get the job done for the American people on issues that are important to the American people. And I hope we can do that in the next uh, few years. Yeah. Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart, always a pleasure to have you on our program. Come back anytime.
<laughs> My pleasure. Thanks, and I'm Thanks. please stay healthy. And you, you as well. Thanks so much. Of course, you've already had COVID. Don't get it again. That's right. That's right. Hopefully not. Right, Michael? <laughs> no, I hope not. All right. Coming up, the roundtable, we're going to take a closer look at the week's top news stories, and there were so many of them. Oh, the roundtable began here during the commercial break between Glenna and me, but now you are going to be able to join it. Diverse points of view politically, and we're going to analyze the week's top stories. We have some familiar faces, wonderful faces with us this week. Introductions first. Stephen Johnson is the chair of the Miami-Dade Black Affairs Advisory Board. He's a lawyer with Lidecker Diaz firm in Miami. Ed Pozzuoli is a former chair of the Broward Republican Party and always an influential voice in GOP politics in the state. He's also president of the Trip Scott Law Firm in Fort Lauderdale. Great to see you both. Hey, good afternoon, gentlemen. Good, good afternoon. We're great. We're grateful you're you are with us. Uh, you know, if we can, Stephen Johnson, let me begin with uh, uh, this alarming or depressing statistic in this Miami Herald article this morning. We talked about it with Lieutenant Governor Nunez a minute ago, and that is that wealthy white people, people who live in Pinecrest or Aventura or Fisher Island, are getting vaccines at a very high rate, but 6% of black people in Miami-Dade County, and I'm sure it's about comparable in Broward, only a small percentage of black people are getting vaccines. Uh, is the state doing enough? Is the county doing enough to try to address this? Actually, no. In fact, one of the things that I urge both Jackson Health and the county to do is just open up the lists. The way they're rolling this out right now, they're doing slots. And if you're not on Twitter 24-7, if you're not on Facebook, you don't even know that the slots are open. They're just now getting to telephone appointments. That is not the way to reach our seniors, particularly seniors in the black community. Well, what's the best what way? They, what's the, the best, best way? way is, the best way for them to do it is to open up slots. Let the community-based organizations who work with these populations go and get people signed up. If we're able to get people signed up and get people on the rolls on a rolling basis, the entire county benefits, and more importantly, you won't have a statistic like Opalaka at 2%, because people can get engaged, get energized, and get in front of our seniors so that they can get their slot in line. Okay, can I just bring up, I, 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 uh, I'm really uncomfortable just spouting statistics without context, because right now there, there is no context except for just a sort of patchwork of distribution sites, people, it, it sort of seems like the state's just doing whatever they can, the best they can, and learning as they go. And a lot of people are getting left out of that process. Ed, is there, is there a, a better way that you see, for instance, I, I had suggested go by congressional district and identify people there and give it to them rather than soliciting people to ask for appointments. Do, do you see a better way? Absolutely. There's probably a better way, but let's let's understand what the problem really is. And I appreciate you wanting to put that in context because I think it's important. First and foremost, we have Florida has uh, uh, vaccinated the most seniors, which was the focus group uh, of any state, over a million now. I think they've done a great job. Now, 
That said, I think we need more supply. And so supply meaning also distribution. My understanding was they were trying to, as an example of Publix and CVS and Walmart, all of those uh, more um, or less in, um, structured sites, people visit those places every day on a regular basis. There's no intimidation when it comes time to go to the hospital to get the shot where they are now. But the initial rollout, because of the limited number, I think is uneven. Now, remember the focus, though. I think it's important. Seniors and healthcare workers, and I think Florida has done a great job with limited supply that it's had. So, Stephen, I'm going to please take that question too. What what is the better way? Right now, there are churches, houses of worship, grocery stores. It is a patchwork. What is the better way to get people in a more systemic, organized, focused fashion who are eligible? to come in and get a vaccine. What, what's the idea there? So it, it's interesting because the reports I read was that the public's rollout, which I think is a great idea. Our seniors certainly go to Publix. Uh, the public's rollout was, was limited to certain counties uh, and there was a, a political bent to that in that those counties happened to be heavily Republican. And I'm not saying there is or there isn't. What I'm saying is, if Publix is a good idea in Gadsden County, it's a good idea in, in Miami-Dade County. If uh, opening up the list and just letting people get in line, queue up as it were, uh, allows people to not try to rush in for 45 slots, 50 slots that'll be open for seconds, like a concert ticket, um, we'll actually start to see a more even rollout. This should not be a situation where we have our seniors fighting amongst themselves. This should be a situation where uh, we're trying to get everybody, and that touches on another point, which is including our undocumented seniors. We need, in, this is a community that needs everyone vaccinated. So we should be making every effort to get everyone vaccinated. I'm advocating for the black community because it's disproportionately affected by this particular virus. But we need everyone vaccinated. Yeah. Well, if I can we, make one point on the political ahead, piece, let's not view this through a political prism. The, the, the public's rollouts in certain smaller counties were essentially because they didn't have a large, they weren't part of the Pfizer Five as an example. I mean, Dade and Broward enjoyed the fact that we had Memorial and Jackson down in Dade distributing the Pfizer. So that was more of a balance to try to get it more uniformly out to the various counties around the state. I would like to see a greater supply. I agree with Stephen in that the greatest supply and multiple distribution points so everybody can get it as quickly as it can. But the state is dealing with the supply issue and is trying to get them out with the focus of dealing with 65 plus seniors and healthcare workers. And to that count, they're achieving their goals. Yeah. All right, stay tuned. We'll be back with more Roundtable in just a few minutes. Welcome back. We are in the midst of a really good Roundtable with Stephen Johnson of the Leichhardt Decker Diaz firm. The Diaz and that firm is now the chairman of the Florida Democratic Party. Ed Pizzoli was the chair of the Broward Republican Party. We're glad to have you with, with us, gentlemen. Ed Pizzoli, let me ask you this question. 
uh, there were warnings after the assault on the Capitol January 6th that there were going to be similar demonstrations all over the country. Uh, I thought notably and happily, uh, there was nothing in Tallahassee. I mean, and, and I would ascribe that to the fact that Florida's November 3rd general election was extremely well run and we know who won. Donald Trump won the state by 374,000 votes. What would you say? I would say that's true, and there's a lesson there, because uh, having participated in a good fashion with the 2000 election, Florida spent uh, many, many hours revamping its election process to ensure what was a, forget about the result for a second, but the integrity in the result was unquestioned. Uh, whether it came out for Biden or Trump is irrelevant, but the question really is, we had trust and integrity in our election process, and the result was whatever the result was. Uh, and that is something that I do think, in looking at, say, President Biden's uh, you know, inaugural speech, Micah, I would have liked to have seen from a unifying standpoint. He talked about unity. I thought it was great. But in the end, you, let's talk about the election process, not this necessary, the 2000 election, the 2020 election, but let's go through a Florida process that we've gone through the last 20 years and make sure across the country we all can be confident in the integrity of the election process for everyone. I, I, I just love how my Republican friends all of a sudden care about election integrity. You know, the interesting point to raise is that in Florida, the vote of the early totals comes in and they're tabulated before election night. So once the, the election night comes, we tabulate our uh, in-person voting, we usually get a, a result. Now, Republican legislatures in all of the states that our past president chose to accuse of all sorts of shenanigans, um, those legislatures did not allow that to occur, which fed a false narrative of, see, the vote totals will change. I went to bed, I was winning, and I woke up and I lost. No, you, you, you went to bed, you had already lost. You just prevented the count. So while I'm very happy with the jobs done in Florida as far as uh, uh, counting the votes, I have no problem with what occurred in Georgia and with Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. And anybody who would continue to feed that lie, that ongoing lie, what they're doing is they're stoking doubt and division amongst Americans at a time when we're supposed to be coming together. So Everyone we... all of a sudden cares about voter integrity. Trust me, I trust the voters. The voters made the right decision. It's clear in the type of leadership we have now as opposed to the leadership we had a week ago. So Steven, we'll all just I... stipulate that voters really need to trust the process, and that's something that we need to do going forward. But, Ed, Ed can I just ask you sure. really quickly, um, impeachment about to start the first step going forward mm -hmm. tomorrow uh, president biden used the word unity eight times in his inaugural speech can there be unity and an impeachment in the next month simultaneously no, no there cannot be uh, uh first of all I, I go back to what uh, congressman diaz Ballard said earlier in your show i won't repeat that but i do think he made some really salient points about the premeditation of the criminal activity by criminals had nothing to do with the president's speech. Put that aside for a second. 
there is a basic threshold question as a lawyer, constitutional question. You cannot remove a president who is not in office. The, the Constitution point blank says the president is subject to removal. Ed, well, we Ed, have a president. Ed, I president beg your pardon. I, I beg your pardon. I'm going to have to interrupt. We're out of time. I'm sure the president's lawyers are going to make that argument when they get into the well of the Senate at, their, uh, at the impeachment trial. Uh, Stephen Johnson, great to have you. Ed Pizzoli, always enjoy your intelligence and insights. Thanks very much. Thanks. We'll Thanks. be right Thanks, back. Thanks. Stay tuned. We are so grateful you have spent this hour with us. Remember, we're online 24-7 at local10.com. As always, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Sunday.